Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast to stolen lands across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. Progressive people need to worry less about having, being morally correct about things and worry more about how do we actually get into a dialogue with people to convince them. So, you know, a victory about Adani will be very important in a symbolic way, right? But there's much more coal produced in the Hunter Valley than would be produced at Adani. But where's the action that's really needed on climate change? For many, the victory of the Liberal National Coalition at the federal election was crushing. With the polls pointing to a Labor win, their failure has led to a scatterfire of recriminations. But votes for the two main parties have been falling for years, and disillusionment with established politics has been on the rise. So how do we make sense of these anti-political times? Elizabeth Humphreys is a political economist at the University of Technology, Sydney, and the author of How Labor Built Neoliberalism, and has been writing about anti-politics for a number of years. When Elizabeth joined me on the phone from Sydney, I started by asking her to explain the phenomenon. Over the last few years, I guess the word anti-politics has sort of been around a bit more. Political science and other academics have been looking at what's been happening with political satisfaction over um, the last few decades. So one thing that's been noticed is that in advanced capitalist countries, people are uh, turning up to vote less. Um, That's a bit complicated in Australia because we have um, compulsory voting. People are voting for the traditional political parties. So in Australia, the ALP or the Liberals, less than in the past. They're voting for minor parties more. That voters tend to be more volatile and that all these trends sort of seem to be heading in the same direction. So, um, you know, there was an author in the UK... um, Um, mayor and in his book Ruling the Void he was sort of saying that across the European Union on all these sorts of measures there is a deep a a trend of a deep dissatisfaction um, with political processes as well as politics so not just politicians themselves but um, the political process in general and this seems to have started in the 1960s but then spread up in what we call the neoliberal era, so um, sort of from the 1970s onwards as economic changes like free trade and privatisation and, you know, more so-called liberalised working arrangements started to come into vogue as uh, policy directions. One thing is clear, though, with anti-politics, it's not necessarily a left-wing or right-wing phenomenon, right? It's a... um, Sometimes this sort of explosion of distrust and hatred towards politicians... Um, sort of seems to have a conservative or, or right-wing expression in Brexit, in the election of Trump, in the creation of the Palmer United Party in Australia. But sometimes it can have uh, left-wing expressions in um, the formation of the Syriza Party in um, in Greece after the squares protests and the demonstrations at Sanagma, um, in Spain after the Indignatus movement and 
um, the formation of um, Podemos Party out of that, um, um, uh, out of the Indianapolis movement. So for me, when we think about anti-politics, we want to think about it sort of in two steps. That there's a general mood of distrust and hostility towards both politicians and political processes, and sometimes individuals or organisations and campaigns can harness that mood for their own political ends. Trump harnesses that mood. The pro-Brexit movement harnesses that mood. Palmer, not so much this election, but the previous election, he harnesses that mood. So it's in two steps. The mood's there, but who's trying to capitalise on the mood is the second part of it. So it's interesting. So let's turn back to Australia then and You've said that we can't see anti-politics as neatly left or right uh, and that it's really important to read it as a reaction uh, that can be directed in in different directions. And I think the Syriza and uh, Podemos examples are are great ones of that, though both um, deeply disappointing as well. Um, So looking at Australia, how did we see that play out in the... Uh, 2019 federal election? How did we see anti-politics play out? Where did that anti-political feeling get directed to? Well, I think that when you're looking at the um, electoral statistics and overseas people are, you know, tracking the sort of things I said about, like, people not turning up to vote, there's not actually much evidence that less people are voting here. Actually, the number of young people who were enrolled went up partly because of the Yes campaign. Um, And it looks like similar numbers of people to the last election turned out to vote and there'll be a similar number of informal votes. But those things haven't shifted. But the one thing that is clear and is on a downward trend is that um, people are less likely again and again to vote for the major parties. So whilst, you know, 50 years ago... um, you know, almost everybody was either voting for um, the Labor Party or the Conservative Party. Now, one in um, four people doesn't vote for the major party. They vote for a minor party. And that's a big change in a political system. It comes with a complication. Now, obviously, we have a preferential system. So if people go and vote for One Nation, that vote flows to one of the major parties. If people go vote for the Greens... um, the same thing happens in lower house seats. The difficulty is, if one in four people are saying, I don't want to vote for one of these two major parties, but still 95% of all the lower house seats go to one of one of those two major parties, there's a bit of a disconnect between people wanting to say, I'm not happy with the major parties, but actually those major parties still get elected. And I, that's, I think, in Australia, a really clear expression of... Um, you know, the general move away from the major parties, but the inability to see that realised um, because there aren't that many independent or green members of the lower house. It's less than 5%. It seems like Pauline Hanson's One Nation, Clive Palmer's party and some of the more uh, vocally white supremacist parties uh, picked up on some of these anti-political sentiments. The Greens had a really mixed result how can we read the Greens and their result in, in the context of anti-politics? Sure. Look, I might jump back to something you said before, like that Podemos and Syriza didn't go so well. I think that's important to note that 
when these parties try and capture this political mood, but then they aren't really, they don't end up being that different, right, to mainstream parties, which happened with both Syriza and Podemos. And you, some I would argue also happened with Palmer, United Party and his new formation um, recently. People just start to see these people as just like the others, right? So you can try and harness that mood, but unless you're actually different to the major parties or different to your average politician, things can get into a problem pretty quickly. Now, I was surprised by the Greens' vote. You know, the Greens had a really um, big result in the Kevin 07 election um, where they got their sort of um, biggest national vote ever, I think 14%. And then they sort of slipped away. And I think partly that was because they were very close to the Gillard government. They were seen to be caught up in the sort of technocratic machinations of trying to solve the climate crisis through um, market measures and putting a price on carbon. And it was very, very, um, they were very similar to the Labor Party. And a lot of, I, I thought a lot of people started to see this. And voters did move away from them after that election. And they've caught, recaught some ground um, in this most recent election. So I was a little bit surprised, but I also think you kind of hinted at it in your question. There are a lot of these right-wing um, candidates and micro-parties to the right of the Liberal Party that are capturing um, sections of the right vote, right? Um, but there's actually not very much to the left of the Labor Party. And so the Greens are going to be a, a natural beneficiary. Um, and, you know, so I think the Greens have in different ways in the past really been able to capture... Um, the mood from outside politics, say in the global justice movement, around the World Economic Forum protests in Melbourne in the year 2000, you know, Bob Brown and Kerry Nettle were elected to the Senate. Um, you know, they stood against the Iraq war. The Greens were really beneficiaries of big social movements um, outside of parliament. And uh, you've got to think that there's probably some revival of that relationship um, between the Greens and being the beneficiaries of people who want something different. That's Elizabeth Humphreys, and you're listening to Earth Matters. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. On today's show, we're analysing the federal election with Elizabeth Humphreys. We've been talking about the growing distrust of politicians and disillusionment with the electoral system. In the next half of our interview, we talk about the way forward. But first, we need to deal with Kevin Rudd. You mentioned the Kevin 07 election, 2007 federal election. 
I felt at the time, and I felt like there was a sort of a, a, a popular feeling that after 11 years of the coalition under Howard stymieing action on climate change, there was a big promise made by uh, Kevin Rudd and the ALP to take action on climate change that really felt like it was riding on a strong popular mood. And there was also lots of climate rallies organised by the mainstream NGOs, obviously building to this election, the Kevin 07 election. Kevin 07 swept in uh, with the promise of action on climate change, that Australia was finally going to do its part, and very much framed around this moral discourse of, you know, for our children, for our grandchildren. When the Labor Party failed to deliver in any meaningful way on climate change and backed down from their policies or were defeated on them. I'm interested in talking about that uh, in our discussion of anti-politics and just a real sense of disillusionment and scepticism that people might have had that once again something was promised and if it was such a big moral issue and and yet the Labor Party failed to deliver on this, does it just feed back into this anti-political feeling? I think so. For the voters who had real hope that that certain things would change with the election of the Rudd government, particularly progressive voters, thought there would be substantial change on um, Australia's treatment of asylum seekers and there would be substantial change on um, action on climate change. But if we think what happened, like, you know, the, 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 neither of those things happened. Um I think the climate change issue is particularly interesting because I think most people know that a price on carbon and trying to solve the climate crisis through the mechanism of a capitalist market is not going to work, right? That actually we need something far more significant and far more um, fundamental to change in the way that we actually produce energy and live in Australia. And that's not going to be solved through an ETS or a price on carbon. Now, I think by heading down that path, people both lost faith with the Labor Party and the Greens for backing that. And the weird thing was that the Liberal Party were put forward this direct action plan, which was, of course, not going to solve the crisis, but that's actually what's needed. Significant, you know, large-scale interventions by state and Commonwealth governments in order to um, transform um, the energy um, industries in Australia and the way that um, uh, the, the way that we live. Now if, if I, I, the most hopeful thing that I think is um, being talked about in terms of debates about what kind of future in terms of climate is something like the Green New Deal that actually the question of good jobs and the question of solving or addressing the climate crisis um, can actually be part of the same package. That's the sort of policy that um, a Labor Party should have been heading into an election with, that, you know, talking to their traditional voters and the people who traditionally have been members of of the Labor Party and the trade unions, um, that it's not a question of just shutting down one particular mine um, in Queensland um, 
but actually a question of really transforming and ordinary people and ordinary workers being part of that transformation in building that alternative future. I think that sort of way lies the hope, but often both Green groups and the Labor Party have been dragged into trying to address what are fundamental threats to the ability of humans and animals to survive on the planet in quite abstract and marketised neoliberal solutions to, to that problem. I think uh, you have really come to the crux of where I see the issue of environmental uh, struggles and climate change intersecting with anti-politics. And I think this sort of discussion is really crucial now in the wash-up after the federal election. So we've now got a new leader of the ALP, Albanese, seemingly swinging more to the to the right and uh, certainly, uh, you know, not offering the big, bold uh, visions for a future such as the Green New Deal. I think the Green New Deal is a great counterpoint for this discussion. So like you've just described, the Green New Deal proposing really bold action by the state, uh, primarily large state intervention, but also talking about a future to working class people and to communities affected by mining and power generation, which I wonder who were found on the wrong side of a very moralistic argument made by a largely city-dwelling environment movement, a, a corporate NGO environment movement, that saw these communities as being on the wrong side of a moral battle and mm. didn't offer them what they what they needed, which was a bold vision. So maybe this is a good point. We've already started to talk about it, but to talk about Queensland, uh, the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, and to talk about northern Tasmania. So, you know, as examples of where we saw that anti-political mood playing out. Yeah, I think one thing that I find, I found really kind of off-putting is people suggesting, commentators suggesting that People who um, care about their jobs in the mining industry are somehow selfish. Now, people want to keep their jobs because they actually care about their families and they care about their livelihoods and they want to, um, where they can exercise some control over maintaining some sort of um, uh, living standards. To suggest, what are we saying to these people? You should go and vote for a party that has no plan for what kind of job you will do other than we're going to shut down this particular mine that may have given you work or shut down this particular mining sector in the Hunter Valley, which has given you and your family work for many generations. But that's not actually the choice. The choice is between a plan that will give people both good jobs maintain living standards in what is a really difficult economic situation in most rural areas and a future for the planet and having no plan to address that. And really, um, I'm not... The ALP may have had some piecemeal policies around various issues in this past election, but you couldn't say they had a... They put to the Australian electorate an overall plan that could really address the sorts of social, economic and environmental problems that Australia has. 
And I think, you know, every, some of the commentariat have sort of been saying, you know, Albanese has to shift back to the centre, that the ALPs is too bold. But I think, um, I think Guy Rundle was putting it best in his crikey analysis. Actually, the ALP offered piecemeal policies about the distribution of certain riches or wealth in Australia, but no generalised plan to inspire people that they could come into government and they could actually deal with the significant things facing Australia, including the climate problem. For people on the left, for people involved in organising for progressive social change, uh, organising in their unions and workplaces, how do we engage with anti-politics? How do we engage with this... I think, very justified scepticism, distrust and, and disgust with the political class and parliamentary politics? We think we absolutely have to intervene, right? It's not... We don't want to leave this space open for conservative parties and racist parties to monopolise people's worries about the future and hatred of politicians and politics. Like, progressive people need to intervene and actually convince people that they have answers, but they also need to listen to them. Um, you know, like it was quite worrying, obviously, when you mentioned the Hunter Valley, the seat of Hunter, which um, the start of that seat in the Hunter Valley outside Newcastle is only two hours drive from Sydney. So it's really actually quite close and it's very close to urban areas. But in that seat, there was a 20% vote for One Nation and some booths in that seat were up to 30% vote for One Nation. It's not just a question of being moralistic, pointing the finger and telling people what's wrong with them and they're racist, but actually understanding what is it that is meaning that people will go and vote for this party and what 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 is the alternative that can be put. So I found it really useful to... There was a, a video interview with that One Nation candidate in the seat of Hunter who came reasonably close to winning. You know, he's not some climate-denying fool. He actually thinks, you know, human production has caused the climate crisis. He just thinks <laughs> the solution is different. I think that people are often open to being convinced, but that progressive movements are usually quite cut off um, from... Uh, from being around the people who need to be convinced um, or, or discussed with, and that people often have very little understanding about what is going on for working-class people or for people in rural areas. Like, people can, it's very easy to point the finger at Tasmania not voting the right way. Like, Tasmania has um, the lowest average wages in the entire country. It has been an effective recession for an extremely long time and you can forget or be quite ignorant of what it's like in um, parts of Australia because you do live in locations where um, economics looks quite different and I think any progressive people need to worry less about having being morally correct about things and worry more about how do we actually get into a dialogue with people to convince them so you know, a victory about Adani will be very important in a symbolic way, right? But there's much more coal produced in the Hunter Valley than would be produced at Adani. But where's the action that's really needed on climate change? Every time there is a string of hot days, people die in Western Sydney. It, it has the biggest population centre in the country. And nobody is talking about 
the lack of trees, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of um, uh, 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 heating and appropriate heating and cooling built into the urban environment, and people literally are dying in electorates like Blacktown and Penrith. For me, the environmental movement, and myself included, needs to not just have a strategy that is a, might be about a symbolic win about Adani, but a strategy about what will, what is being experienced by working-class people with heat stress in an era of climate change in Western Sydney, which is the biggest population centre in the country. That is, I think, part of the answer. What are those people experiencing and what is the environment movement going to both do for them, but how are they going to become part of the environment movement? That is perhaps... Um, a really big question that we need to talk about. Elizabeth Humphreys, political economist at the University of Technology, Sydney, and author of How Labor Built Neoliberalism. You can read her article about the federal election and anti-politics in Overland magazine. And the song featured on today's show is Get Fooled by Mojo Juju. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's national environmental justice program. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Or if you're listening via iTunes or any other podcasting service, why not rate us and leave us a review? It helps spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Victoria. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or send us a letter, care of 3CR. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. All they do is talk, talk, talk.